If you will turn, please, to Luke chapter 9. We continue in the Gospel of Luke. This morning we will be looking at verses 46 through 50 of the ninth chapter, the Gospel of Luke. Our sermon this morning is least is greatest. And the key words for our worshipers in training are pride, greatest, and child. Now, ever since the late 19th century, Americans have developed an ever-increasing interest in celebrity athletes to the point of idolizing them. As media coverage has increased along with sponsorships and more and more money being poured into individuals who are athletically talented, they have become cultural icons, heroes to little ones, and the great concern that consumes much of the time of grown men. So it's no wonder that many of the names in professional athletics have become synonymous with arrogance and pride. They have more money than they know what to do with. A constant barrage of people who want to be seen with them and have their picture with them and to have their signature, to own their brand... And our culture, for the most part, caters to their every desire at the snap of a finger. We, as a people, have created pedestals on which they stand. And yet, we all seem so very surprised when they fall. You need not look very long before you find the latest celebrity athlete admitting to some sort of involvement in a scandal or a moral deviance. Anything from Lance Armstrong currently losing all seven of his Tour de France titles because of illegal use of drugs and blood transfusions, to the gambling of Pete Rose, to the adultery of Tiger Woods, You name it, some of the greatest and most revered athletes in the history of the United States have proven to be what we as Christians understand them to be, and that is just like us, sinners in need of a Savior. They're not superhuman. They're not anything different than we are. But you see, everything started well before their falls from favor in the eyes of the public. It's the root sin, the sin at the heart of all sin, which is the major element that infests the hearts of these men and so many others. It is the ugly and ravenous sin of pride. Of just these three incidents I've mentioned, each of them was was couched in a lie that was in their minds, that they were too big and too great and too popular and too revered to ever fall and to ever get caught. In fact, in in Lance Armstrong's latest interview where he confessed to his illegal use of various performance-enhancing drugs, he stopped short of ever calling it unethical. It was, in his words, to level the playing field because, after all, everyone else was doing it as well. You see, it has proven to us time and time and time again that men and women make terrible gods. 
and that money and fame cannot buy godliness and morality, and that pride, according to the Proverbs, always, always comes before a great and treacherous fall. And it is easy, isn't it, for us to sit back and to cast stones at the latest celebrity uh, scandal while refusing to look at our own hearts of pride. After all, these people aren't Christians, some of them very outspoken about their disdain for Christianity, so we shouldn't really expect much more than what we see in them. And while their example proves to us the inevitable result of the recognition of man separated from God and the eventual result of the idolization of the creation, rather than the full-fledged devotion to the Creator, It also shows us that we too are very much prone to the overwhelming sin of pride that will inevitably lead to destruction. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book on Christian behavior, Today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world simply loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they can't keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I don't think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of sin ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship with jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. You see, like Lewis, we are all very capable as Christians of pointing out pride when we see it and recognizing it, recognizing it for what it is in light of a sinful nature. And what we're going to see in the disciples in this morning's text is the manifestation of pride. Pride in a believer's heart and what it has the tendency to bring out of us. We will also see Jesus' remedy to pride and the call to humility. So let's read together, beginning in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side And said to them, whoever receives this child in my name will receive, uh, receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now what could be more antithetical to the Christian life than pride? 
We who have been saved apart from doing anything on our own completely and totally by the grace of God when we actually deserve death and condemnation. Pride is a boasting in ourselves, taking for ourselves that which most belongs to God, namely recognition and honor and praise. And pride puffs us up and makes us to feel superior and deserving. And that very thing, understanding what pride is, makes the pride of the disciples all the more shocking because of the context in which they find themselves when we look at this text today. I know that perhaps it feels as though we spend a lot of time going over and summarizing what we've already looked at in the Gospel of Luke, but I cannot emphasize enough the importance of seeing Scripture in its context, understanding what is being said in light of all the surrounding events. And it's things like this in its very context that makes this boasting and this pride of the disciples so unspeakably sinful and nearly unbelievable. Think of what we've looked at over the past few weeks. Jesus sending out the apostles to cast out demons, to heal the sick. How were they able to do it? Because he gave them power. He gave them authority. And soon after their return, Jesus seeks to bring them to a quiet, deserted place. But the people follow by the thousands upon thousands. And Jesus looks to the apostles and he says, feed them. And remember, the apostles were baffled. They were unable. But Jesus, on the other hand was able to divide the five loaves and two fishes to make a meal large enough for the people to be filled. Some 20 to 50,000 people with baskets of food left over. And it was then that Peter answered Jesus when asked, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, The Christ of God. The apostles knew, they, they understood, they had a more clear view of who it was that they were with day by day. Jesus then tells the apostles of his impending trials, his death, his resurrection, but they do not understand what he is saying to them. But do you remember in, in the confusion of it all, Jesus turns to them and he says, listen, brothers, if you are to be a follower of me, if you will be my disciples, you must pick up your cross daily and follow me. Don't be ashamed of me. And don't expect a bed of roses and a carefree journey. And about a week later, Peter, James, and John ascend the mountain with Jesus and saw Jesus transfigured. They saw the glory of Jesus, the divinity pressing through his humanity while he spoke with the glorified Moses and Elijah. And they heard the voice of God in heaven tell them, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And only a few hours later, they descend the mountain into the valley where a boy possessed by a demon. And there's nine other apostles unable to cast it out. Their faith had turned from Jesus who provided power and authority to their own supposed talents and abilities. How humbling, how humiliating it must have been. One after the other after the other, the apostles would have tried to cast out the demon to no avail. And I imagine this boy's father, you men are useless to me. You cannot do anything. Where is Jesus? 
Where might I find him that my son might be healed? And Jesus came and in an instant cast out the demon and all were astonished at the majesty of God. And then immediately afterwards, Jesus again told the apostles of his coming death, but they did not perceive what he was saying. So you see, in this context, in all that we have seen happen in a very short period of time, we see this. All that the apostles have done of any worth was done by Christ's provision, by the power and authority given by Christ. It's been proven to them time and again that you cannot do anything apart from Christ. Everything they sought to do on their own was messed up. They pursued it without faith and they were full of self-dependence. And now look at them. Look again at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. It's astonishing. Of all the men of the earth who ought to be most humble, we find in them the greatest amount of pride. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Do they not know to be a door holder in the kingdom of God for eternity is far greater and far more blessed than the man who dwells in the world of sin and misery? Now remember, even still, the apostles were assuming that the literal physical throne of David and a political earthly kingdom is what Jesus was after. In their eyes, he had come to set them free from the rule of the Roman Empire, establishing a new regime of which they are now in their minds going to be cabinet members of. You can almost hear their conversation. I think I will be the secretary of state. Well, I will most likely be vice king because after all, I am the greatest. Peter, the only reason he took you on the mountain and not us is because he wouldn't dare let you out of his sight. He doesn't trust you. How deceptive, how cruel is the heart of pride. Vicious and unloving, boasting, always seeking one's own favor. Pride is a sin we so despise in others, and yet we very rarely ever see it within ourselves. But how? How did such pride swell in the hearts of the apostles? You see, the gracious hand of God has reached down into their humble, lowly lives, turning fishermen and tax collectors into ministry partners of Jesus. So now in their minds, they were something quite special. They had been called and taught and gifted for ministry. And so in their minds, they thought, surely we must be the greatest. And in fact, among all of the 12 of us, I'm number one. Pride is such an ugly sin, isn't it? And brothers and sisters, we must consider our own proneness to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. The great Christian theologian John Stott once said, at every stage in our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, Pride is the greatest enemy. Charles Spurgeon said, A man never lowers himself more than when he tries to lift himself up. If I'm honest, 
I must admit the tendency of my own heart to be just like the apostles. It's really shameful. I consider all that God has blessed me with. All the ways that God has gifted me. The ways that God has called me to serve. The things that God has taught me. And my natural inclination so often is to be proud of myself. To boast. This is the danger encapsulated in the warning given by the Apostle Paul to the young pastor Timothy about the choosing of elders for the church. When he says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The more public one's calling in life, the more prone to pride we become. There must be a certain level of maturity about the people of God who will do well, who will walk faithfully to the end in a calling which brings much recognition and praise. And oh, how convicting that is. As I confess my own proneness to pride, my heart is also overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratitude for the patience of God and the mercy of God and the patience and the love and the repeated forgiveness of God and his people to cover sin with love and to encourage greater faithfulness and maturity day by day. That's why I've always said, if it's up to me, Lord willing, I will be here at Ephesus Church well into my 60s. I owe it to you for having put up with me when I was in my 20s. In Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, we learn of the motivation behind Satan's rebellion against God. We read this, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And led by the pride filled Lucifer, powerful angelic creatures possessing beauty and glory far beyond our comprehension, pridefully desired recognition and status that is equal to God himself. And God, of course, we know swiftly and severely judged them. And this, this of Satan and all who would follow him, this was the first of all sins and is, in fact, the essence of all sin. Every sin we commit begins with the prideful desire to be our own interpreter, to be our own authority. And in the scriptures of all that God says he hates, it is the proud man's haughty eyes that he hates the most. Why does he hate it so much? Because pride in sinful human beings aspiring the status and position of God, refusing to acknowledge their complete dependence upon him alone. Because pride is a contending for the supremacy of God in ourselves. It may reveal itself in many different forms, but pride only has one true end. Self-glorification. 
from the works of Jonathan Edwards, there's a short treatise called Undiscerned Spiritual Pride. And you got it in your bulletin this morning, hopefully. I read this short page at the beginning of every single year and use it as a tool to consider the motives and the longings of my very own heart. And in this, Jonathan Edwards writes this, Pride takes many forms and shapes and encompasses the heart like the layers of an onion. When you pull off one layer, there is another underneath. Therefore, we need to have the greatest watch imaginable over our hearts with respect to the matter and to cry most earnestly to the great searcher of hearts for his help. He who trusts his own heart is a fool. And so to say the least, the apostles were acting quite foolishly. So how does Jesus respond to the pride of the apostles and, of course, to the pride of all of us? He calls us to humble service. Look again at verses 47 and 48. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives, me, uh, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now in Greek and Jewish cultures, the, great, the greatness of a man was determined by the company he kept. The great associated with the great and deal with matters of the greatest significance. So Peter, James, and John probably argued for their greatness based upon their meeting with Jesus and Moses and Elijah at the Transfiguration. And children to them were not considered great or significant. In fact, in the first century, a Jewish rabbi wrote this, Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children and tarrying in places where men of the common people assemble, Destroy a man. Chattering with children destroys a man. In their culture, engaging with children in any way was simply a waste of time. And so Jesus' illustration was perfect. Jesus was striking them with that which would break through their selfish pride and ambitions. And he presents them with two opposite figures. Himself, who is the greatest, who they loved and who they adored. And then a small, lowly child who was nothing to them. And so Jesus' remedy for their pride was through a challenge. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Now, Jesus was not saying that the apostles or anyone else would find him or find favor with him simply because we're nice to children. That's not his point. He was saying that how we relate to a child and by implication, all who are lowly. This would indicate whether or not we related to him and to God the Father. It's an absolute blow to pride, isn't it? The apostles at this point were a group of men who were, for various reasons, having their heads blown up bigger and bigger and bigger. And they thought way too highly of themselves, 
a group of men who thought that they would be cabinet members in the royal temple of Jesus when he reigned as king in the way they assumed he would. Men who would at that point have no place in their lives and no time for the weak and for the lowly of of what they once were. And now they're challenged and it strikes them right in their hearts. You see, according to Jesus himself, his followers welcome the weak and the lowly. We don't push them away. We don't consider them unworthy of our time and our energies. And Jesus is saying the way we receive them demonstrates whether or not we have received him. And all who welcome Jesus welcome God the Father also. You see, greatness is not merely the possession of those who associate with the great. It is rather a gift of God to those who receive and serve the lowly. So Jesus answers their question in a way that they never expected. You want to know who's going to be the greatest? The one who receives the weak and the lowly with love and affection and care. That's who. In other words, those who live a life of service unto others to the glory of God, it is they who are great. This is an expression of true humility in the kingdom of God. So consider for a moment, when is the last time you served someone else? Not because you were benefiting from it or because it was owed or expected of you, but the last time out of a humble desire to love and to serve another to the glory of God alone. This ought to be the regular pattern of our lives as Christians. Let me state it this way. It should be normal for Christians to be inconvenienced for the good of others as Christian people. Either in our time or with our homes, our resources, whatever we have to offer, in whatever way we are able to serve, whether when we do it with humility, we are pursuing true greatness. When we make ourselves the least, we have achieved that which is the greatest. Let me give you some things to consider. Perhaps you're some kind of manager or boss of others. Do those who work under you respect you because you have sought to love and to serve and to care for them first and foremost, or do they simply tolerate you because they have to? Do the men and women at the very bottom rung of your company know that you care about them? Do you know their names? Do you know the circumstances of their lives? Do you know of a family who struggles to put food on the table and keep their power on? When's the last time you gave up a luxury to make sure they were able to eat a good meal and run the air conditioner through the summer. Perhaps you could send them an anonymous gift or drop off an unexpected meal to their home. Husbands, how are you serving your wives in humble ways that they love? When's the last time you made her dinner or cleaned the dishes when she was on her way home without being asked? 
Perhaps you can take the children out on a Saturday morning to give her time to herself to do whatever she wants instead of filling everyone else's needs. How many of us have taken the time instead of simply ignoring or walking by those who ask us for money or food have taken the time to sit down and to talk and to listen to their stories and to hear about their lives? It's a humbling thing to hear the circumstances of people who have sometimes lived lives very similar to many of our own and yet end up homeless and destitute for all sorts of different reasons even sometimes at no real fault of their own. You see, these are just examples, but the opportunities to serve others for the sake of loving them to the glory of God are all around us. And when we do so, we are walking in humility, wrought by the Spirit of God within us. Get creative. Opportunities abound and we should take advantage of them. Some Christians do not know any insignificant or weak members of society, much less have any kind of relationship with them. Are we reaching out? Are we serving the poor, those who maybe speak little English or the mentally handicapped or prisoners or ex-convicts and widows and orphans and those who are struggling to leave their immorality behind? If all or nearly all of our friends are those who are the great, the well-off, the well-educated, the accomplished, the comfortable, we are not the men and women our master wants us to be. We must learn in our working out the things of God that it truly is far more blessed to give than to receive. And we learn what it means to live less and less upon ourselves and more and more upon all that God provides. Let's be a people who are gladly inconvenienced for the sake of others that God himself might be glorified all the more through us. Who is the greatest among us? He who makes himself to be the least for those who are weak and lowly and in need of our love and our care. That's who. Continue in verse 49. John answered, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. The words of Jesus in his exhortation were stinging. They pierced the hearts of the disciples and surely deflated their pride, so much so that it seemed to stir in John a remembrance of an event that occurred which the apostles act arrogantly in, with great pride because of their ability to cast out demons when Jesus had given them the power to do so. During their Galilean ministry, John and company had encountered a successful freelance exorcist. And apparently this man had not been called in the very same way that Jesus had called the twelve apostles. He had not been commissioned as they had. He had not been given privilege to receive instruction from Jesus and have the experiences of the twelve. So they tried to stop him, but to no avail. 
You know, it seems an odd thing at first, perhaps, that John brings this instance up. But what's clear is that their sin in that moment had the same root as what we've been discussing, namely their sinful pride about being privileged disciples. They considered the casting out of demons to be their exclusive ministry, and yet Jesus never told them that was the case. He never suggested that they and they alone were to do these things in their day. You know, it's a fearful thing as the disciples were learning to be engaged in the work of ministry, knowing that one day all who are will be called to give an account for how we've done at a higher level of judgment than others. And yet recognizing that the ravenous sin of pride is ever crouching at the door. Pride is a sin that tarnishes so much of ministry, which shows just how corrupt our hearts are because we, above all people, are those who should recognize that the great gift of grace and the incredible humility it ought to bring to us. And two, so many congregations are brought to a place of spiritual and theological or simply pragmatic pride. Sinful pride because maybe we're more spiritually minded. Pride because we have good doctrine and can discuss the finer points of theology. Pride because we've baptized more people than other churches in an association or denomination. Pride because we have more people who are members. Pride because our ministries are growing and thriving. None of these particular things are bad things. In fact, they can all be very, very good things. But when they become areas that cause us pride because we assume we have been given the key to unlock ecclesiastical perfection, we've completely missed the point. Do you know the difference between the aseity and the simplicity and the impassibility of God? And can you discuss each of them, defending your position and pointing to examples in Scripture that support your claim with truth and clarity? Well, praise God. And if you can, I am glad. I am delighted. It kind of makes me giddy. Now fall on your face and thank God. Thank Him for giving you His Word and the Spirit of God that you have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand. Not because of anything you have done. Not because of anything you have accomplished. Not because it's anything that you deserve. But because it is God who is at work within you. By His grace and for His glory to make Himself known to us. If you have one ounce of sinful pride in your heart because you have known and experienced more of God than your neighbor, I suggest that just perhaps you may have not known and experienced more of God than your neighbor. Maybe you have known and experienced far less of God than your neighbor and far more of a self-serving revelation that you know some facts but don't necessarily know how to properly use them to bring God glory and to bring yourself to a place of humble thankfulness before the Father. Do you bemoan the fact 
that there are churches out there who are seeing people truly come to Christ, who are seeing people grow into faithful disciples and yet don't necessarily align with us on all matters of doctrinal truth. Now, look, I'm not talking about false conversions and those who claim that every person who has ever cried during the 15th verse of just as I am as a Christian. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying there are churches that are faithfully preaching the gospel. And yet there are things about what they do as churches that we're not necessarily fond of. But can we not celebrate the fact That God is doing something wonderful among his people for his kingdom's sake. Can we not rejoice in what God is doing? Rejoicing in the work of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the one who is not against you is for you. Now I'm the first to admit that I wish every church on every corner was a Reformed Baptist church. But I'll tell you. I've learned and grown a tremendous amount in my Christian life from those who are different shades of Christians. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. Don't hear me saying our differences don't matter. Don't hear me saying that they're not worth talking about or working through. But what I am saying is that any sense of pride related to the church of Jesus Christ is a foolishness that must be purged from our midst lest we collapse. Perhaps more than most things we know to be true from Scripture, we see abundant examples in our lives and in our culture that pride really does come before the great big fall. Oh, how desperately we need to humble ourselves before God. And I know that as I preach these words, that there are some of you who are sitting in here this morning who have pridefully assumed that you are in control of your own life, of your own destiny, and that the only authority in your life truly is yourself. In your mind, it's your life, and you're going to live it any way you want. I want to tell you, friend, While you may assume that others are proud and arrogant and boastful, there is no greater pride in this world than to go about life shaking your fist at the heavens, telling God that you are your own interpreter of what is good and right and lovely. But know this, the life of pride is a life of misery. All of your efforts to convince others of your greatness and all of your thoughts of self-righteousness and all of your attempts at explaining away your sin, they're exhausting. They are miserable. And I want to tell you, you were not created to be your own God. You were created to humble yourself before the one true and living God who created you, who sustains you, who knows and does all things. In love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to humble himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross, to take upon himself the wrath of God that was rightfully ours, that we might receive a right standing before God that is rightfully belonging to Jesus. 
God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For the Christian, there is no more humbling truth that should cause great thanksgiving and worship within us. For those who do not believe, there is no greater offer of hope. Repent. Turn to Christ and believe on him. Repent of your pride and unbelief and humbly submit yourself to his authority that you might live a life of true greatness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you stir within all of us hearts of repentance. Lord, we, we would repent of our pride. The pride of our own lives, the pride of our own hearts, the pride of our own families. <clears throat> Proud because of what we are able to do and the way that we are able to do what we do. Pride because of our children and our homes. Pride because of our possessions. Pride because of who we are in light of who others in the world claim to be. Cause us, O oh God, to be broken by our pride that we will repent. Father, stir within us as a church, as a body of believers, a heart of repentance, that we repent of any theological pride. Pride because we have assumed that we've done all things perfectly. All things in step with all that you have commanded, without error. Father, cause us to repent of our pride. It causes us to look upon others who are the body of Christ with disdain. Father, we do repent. We repent, O oh God, of the fact that often we will look at what you have taught us. We will see how you have grown us. We will recognize how you have allowed us to know and trust your word in the ways that you have. And we have assumed it is by our own doing and by our own works and by our own minds and abilities to comprehend. Forgive us, O oh God. Make us to be a humble people who are seeking to serve those who are weak and lowly, that we truly can achieve true greatness. Father, turn our haughty eyes from ourselves, that they may be humble eyes that see the cross in all of its glory, in all that Christ has done in humbling himself on our behalf, 
May we rejoice in him and him alone. May our only boast be the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, for those who are here this morning, whose very pride is that they refuse to submit and humble themselves to the place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, make known to them the ugliness of their sin. Give to them new hearts by the Holy Spirit that they too might walk in a life of humility, rejecting the things of the world, that you would be glorified. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word to pierce our hearts, to convict us of sin, and also to apply the balm of healing in the gospel. Because we recognize fully, O God, that we will have the ugly sin of pride arise in our lives. And yet as we recognize it, we can turn to Christ who never lived in pride, who never worked in pride, who always humbled himself for the sake of us who are sinners, who are destitute and poor and weak and lowly and in great need of far greater than anything we could provide for ourselves. Thank you, O oh God, for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus.